0: Good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to Genesis chapter eight. That's where we're going to be spending a big chunk of our time today. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there in chair racks in front of you, and you can make your way forward there towards Genesis chapter eight, because Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, and So it should be easy for you to make your way to where we are going to be today. Of course, our uh, hearts go out to uh, the the communities and people in South Florida who were uh, pretty heavily damaged by the hurricane. It's been a week. Um, We are thankful uh, for and grateful for being spared uh, the brunt of the storm, at least in our communities, Uh, but of course know that there are many people who have experienced a lot of, of loss. Last week, we began the third of 10 major sections in the book of Genesis, and this is the story of Noah. And I began uh, last week by giving you, right at the very front end, the main idea that I want us to carry away from uh, the passage of Scripture that we've been studying both last week and this week. And the main idea for that is simply this. God is faithful to protect His people from judgment. God is faithful to protect His people from judgment. That was true in Noah's day. It's true, it's just as true for us today as it was for them then, and it will be true for us in the future. But last week, we began this awful story of judgment in three acts. Last week, we considered the first two acts. In act one, which we called You've Been Warned, we looked at verses 9 to 22 of chapter 6, and there we see uh, God giving Noah instructions about this ark that he is supposed to build, this big floating chest. Uh, No oars, no rudders, no sails, no outboard motor can barely be, can be considered a boat apart from the fact that it floats. Uh, he is to devote his energy and time to building this so that he can escape the impending judgment that's coming in the form of a flood. We also looked at Act 2, which I called Take Cover, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. And here we see Noah and his family enter the safety of the ark. We see God shut the door of the ark And then we see the awful judgment of God as the fountains of the deep are opened, the floodgates of the heavens are opened, and the floodwaters of judgment extinguish the breath of life from every living thing on the earth. I said last week that what we want to do at the end of each week both last week and this week is then reach forward into the New Testament to see how the New Testament uses passages of scripture like this one. And we are going to consider two significant ways the New Testament uses this passage of scripture. The first one we looked at last week it's an illustration that comes straight from the mouth of Jesus, from Matthew 24, where he is talking to his followers about his second coming, which will be one of both judgment and salvation. And his warning is for people to stay awake because his second coming with judgment and salvation will come just as the flood came in Noah's day. It will be, people will be unsuspecting. So now we're ready to begin the third act in this part of the story. Act 3, I'm calling, in the beginning, again. And it's found in chapter 8, verses 1 to 19. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 19, that there is this cycle that we are working through here. I said last week that that the language from Genesis chapter 1 and even into Genesis chapter 2 is borrowed by our author and pulled into this context so that we can see that what began as an act of creation is now turning into God's act of decreation. Now we're going to see the same language used again in chapter 8 to take this another step further. We're going from creation to decreation, to now, recreation. In other words, we are having a, in a sense, we are, it's going to be in the beginning again, and we're going to see that Noah is, a, as a, is another type of Adam who is going to come and follow God and his plan for the earth. So look with me if you're there at Genesis chapter 8. We're going to begin our reading, and we're just going to read the first four verses together to begin. The word of God says this But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, The waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now when the ark comes to rest, Noah and his family still are not sure whether they are able to leave the safety of the ark. Try to put yourself in their position. As we read this account, it's very clear there's no portholes that, that are covered in glass that they can look out of to kind of see what's happening in the world around them. There isn't, a, an, there isn't an upper deck on top of the ark where they can play shuffleboard or where they can tend their, the plants that are up there or whether they can lay out for a little while to catch a little bit of the sun. There's none of that. As they're in the ark and they're experiencing all the things that are happening around them, they don't have their cell phones, they don't have the weather tracker app, so they can see what the storm is doing outside. They are are in there totally at the mercy of the elements that are happening around them. I just want you to put yourself in their position for a moment and think about frankly, how terrifying that would be to have no idea what's going on around you. And finally, as you've been battered about by the winds and the waves uh, for a period of time and you finally come to rest, there's going to be all kinds of questions going through your mind like, what does it look like out there? What is the the extent of the destruction? How, How far have the waters receded? Where have we landed you don't want to kick open the ark, let all the animals out, say, go have a great time, animals, only to realize that there's an amount of, there's amount of land that's like the size of our parking lot that you all get to occupy together. You don't want the people who have safely made it through the flood to walk out and immediately lose Japheth because the lions don't have anywhere to go. And so they've got to figure out, like, what does this world out here look like, and Since they don't have drones, they're going to send out the next best thing. They're going to send birds out. And there's actually four uh, that they send out. They send out a raven the first time, the Bible tells us. And then they send out, uh, Noah sends out a dove three times after that. The first time the dove goes out, she simply returns. The the second time the dove gets sent out, she returns, remember, with a, a little bit of an olive Branch in her mouth, and then the third time she return, or the third time she doesn't return. And what they're trying to basically figure out, I think, is what, are, what is what's the land like? because we can't just have enough for a bird to land on a tree. We got to have enough land for a bird to gather the things that they're going to need to make a nest. There needs to be food that the bird is going to be able to eat, to eat so that she can lay her eggs and take care of her young. That's the, that's the kind of thing that they are trying to figure out, I think, in sending these birds out. And I just want to say pause, pause for a minute and just uh, just draw partially a connection for you that's not fully formed in my mind. And, uh, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. But there's this interesting thing that I don't know what to do with here that I'm pretty sure is all connected in some way, and so if you've read something about this or you know something about this, by all means, let me know. But remember back in chapter, Genesis chapter 1 when the earth is formless and void, it's, it's unformed and unfilled, and the Bible has that really interesting phrase. It says, the Spirit of God is hovering, the Hebrew word there is like for fluttering over the face of the waters. So we know in chapter 1, we've got the Spirit of God uh, in, in a bird-like motion is being described to us, even though it's a spirit, hovering over the face of the waters. Now, here in our text, we've got birds, once again, because we're in an act of recreation now, so this is a creation, we've gone through to decreation, we're back in recreation, and once again, we have, we have birds over the face of the waters, so hang with me on this. Just a little, little bit, we're going to talk more about this, but in the New Testament, the Bible connects the flood and Christian baptism. Okay, I'm, I'm just trying to lay all these pieces out and then say, you figure out how to put them all together. And then we have Jesus getting baptized, coming up out of the water, and the Spirit descends on him like what? A dove you can't tell me that there's an accident, that, that, that it's a total accident that all that stuff is is harmonized together. Now, what to do with all that, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not sure. But there's more there. It's one, one reason why I love the Bible is because there's you peel back one layer of continuity between it and you get to another layer of continuity. And then you pull that layer back and you try to untangle that and pull all those threads together and you keep reaching it and it's like endless frontiers to study. Anyway, if you've read anything about that, uh, by all means, let me know. Okay, unpause. Back to the sermon. Okay, the animals can now leave the ark safely. It's time for Noah and his family to leave the ark, let's pick up our reading in verse 15 of Genesis 8. The Bible says, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So, Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Once again, remember, we are pulling in the language from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because we've got the language of the dominion mandate there again, don't we? Remember the dominion mandate? God tells his image bearers, the people who have been made in his image, which means that people are reflections of God, that human beings are God's representatives on earth, that we represent God's rule on earth, and we reflect God's glory on earth. And God gives the first human beings the responsibility of then going through all the earth and filling it with his image bearers and having dominion over the earth, cultivating the earth which he has put us in, and in which he has given us Eden as a template. Well, now that we're back to this act of recreation, we see the language of the dominion mandate repeated, telling us that now Noah is is kind of like a second Adam, going out in the beginning again, being re-given the responsibility of going out through the earth, multiplying, and having dominion over it. Now, I think sometimes uh, if you were to ask the average person how long were Noah and his family in the ark, one of the numbers that sticks in our minds from this story is the number 40. Because we know that it rains 40 days and 40 nights, right? That's, uh, that's, a, that's a thing that kind of sticks in our minds. And so if you're to ask the average person how long were Noah and his family in the ark, a month ish. It feels like a month, maybe. Because we got that 40 days and 40 nights in our mind. But I want to remind you, just in the, the bits that we read, it rains 40 days and 40 nights. Which just, you know, let's not let this be lost on us that we're just that we're reading about this during a hurricane. Okay, when it's really raining hard and the winds are swirling about, and you multiply that sustained time by 40, 40 days and 40 nights terrifying destruction. But 40 days and 40 nights is just the rain. We know that, that they're in the ark a week before it starts raining. We've already read that there's 150 days after it stops raining that they're in the ark. And then those who, are, those who uh, uh, look at the, the, the month and time that they get out and try to compare everything, a lot of Bible scholars think they're in the ark for a year. a year your life in a floating coffin, basically, while you experience being battered about, where there's no way to go up to the deck to see what's going on, there's no way to get updates. You have no idea when this is going to end. You, They are totally at the mercy of God. I mean, you want to talk about no resources. When we, when we throw ourselves at God's mercy and various things, we've also got a bunch of backup plans in case God's mercy doesn't pan out. They got nothing. They've got no way of knowing what's going on and how long it's going to last and what the world is going to look like when they get out. They are in a giant, rough-hewn, floating safe room. And that leads me to a verse that I want to draw your attention to just one more time. It's the first four words of Genesis chapter 8. If you're using the English Standard Version, which is the translation that I'm preaching from, then you'll see that the first four words of Genesis 8 are this, but God remembered Noah. But God remembered remembered Noah. That verse takes on an even more striking significance in our minds when we step back and we put ourselves in Noah's shoes, where we're in this thing where we can't see out, and we don't know what's going on, and we don't know with the destruction, and we don't know how it's going to last, and there doesn't seem to be any sign from God at all. And we wondered, has God maybe lost track of this little boat that's being battered about by the waves as the floodwaters of his judgment pummel the earth. And the answer is given for us in verse 1. God remembered Noah. God never lost track. Noah's family was always on God's radar. God had made a covenant with Noah in chapter 6 and verse 18. He had told him of the impending judgment, but he had also told them if he would pour his time and his money and his energy, if he'd be willing to to be a fool in the eyes of the whole world to construct this giant coffin in the back 40 of his property, if he'd do that, he would be spared God's judgment. And when the Bible says that God remembered Noah, the Bible is reminding us God keeps his promises every time. This is the first time in the Old Testament that this word, remember, is used, but it is not going to be the last. I wish that we had the space and time this morning to just Walk through some of those texts, but as you read throughout the Old Testament, you are going to encounter character after character. We are going to move on, and we're going to meet people like Abraham, and we're going to meet people like Isaac and Jacob, and then we're going to meet people like Moses, and then there are going to pe- be people like David, and we're going to meet all sorts of prophets and other kings and biblical characters, and we are going to see a long and winding road that God's people, uh, that God's people follow. And we are going to see that God's judgment is poured out in a variety of ways. We are going to see God's people fail him again and again and again. We are going to see God's people placed in predicaments that it seems like there is absolutely no way out of. And over and over again, the Bible is going to say, but God remembered his covenant to his people. Because we serve a God who keeps his promises. Not one of them falls and never does a single one of his children of promise slip through the cracks or fall off the radar. He remembers and keeps each one. So, the main idea that I've been trying to impress upon you both this week and last, I believe holds true God is faithful to protect his people from judgment because God keeps his promises. Okay, that brings us through, fairly quickly, that brings us through chapter 8. And that brings us to the end of the third act in this story of Noah that we've been looking at over the past two weeks. But as I said, what I want to do is then reach forward into the New Testament. And I want us to do our best to try to understand how the New Testament takes a story like this and reinforces that same point to us. We saw what Jesus did with it in Matthew 24 last week, but now we're going to see what the Apostle Peter does with this story of Noah. And Peter is going to use this story of Noah to illustrate a similar point, that God is faithful to protect his people from judgment. So if you'd like to, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 22. The scripture passage will be up on the screen behind me, so you can follow it there. But we're going to refer to this passage of Scripture a few times because we're going to spend a little bit of time on it, so you may want to turn there yourself so you can look at it directly in your own Bible. And I will tell you right now, there's some tough sledding in this passage. Uh, If you were hoping to kind of sit down and zone out this morning, this is not going to be a sit down and zone out kind of morning, Uh, it's going to require your attention because there are some uh, tricky interpretive issues. and We we could spend a whole message or multiple messages on this sermon. I'm just going to try to hit the high points so that I can make what I believe the main point clear to you. But let me tell you what's going on leading up into verse 18. The Apostle Peter is writing to Christian people who are suffering. He's writing to suffering Christians. And we know that because he uses the language of suffering several times. He talks about the fact of when people do evil to you, we don't respond with evil and kind. When people revile you, we don't revile back. Uh, when people, sl- there are going to be people who slander you in a variety of ways. And so you can just from a, a cursory quick reading leading into the verses that we're going to be looking at, see that the context is Christian suffering. But what he's going to do is he's going to start out by telling them that there is nothing unusual about Christian suffering. In fact, Christian suffering is quite normal. And it's normal because followers of Jesus follow in the footsteps of a suffering Savior, which means if we're going to follow him, we're going to carry the same sorrows and sufferings that he bore. And then he's going to bring Noah into the picture, and we're going to see how he does that. So if you're there, look with me at First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The Bible says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Take a breath. Long sentence, Peter. Break them up a little bit for us. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, I told you, there's a lot of stuff in there that you're reading, you're like, what are you doing, Peter? Peter? Uh, A little bit more expansion on some of this stuff, a little bit more explanation would be helpful. But let's, let's walk through this together briefly to understand the overarching point. Verse 18, as I said, begins with the assurance that Christian suffering is not unusual. There is a category in the Bible of righteous suffering, suffering for righteousness' sake. And Peter is telling his readers, and by extension us, that that if we're going to follow Jesus, then we are going to experience potentially a righteous suffering because Jesus is the ultimate righteous sufferer. Our righteous suffering is different from Jesus' suffering in that none of us are perfectly righteous. Uh, though we may suffer for righteousness' sake, we are ourselves sinners. Jesus suffers for righteousness' sake and is perfectly without sin in every way. So he is the, the perfect righteous sufferer, and the Bible tells us why he does that. He suffers the righteous for the unrighteous so that he may bring us to God. This is the good news of the gospel. That though you and I are unrighteous in word and thought and deed, though we are separated from, From our Creator, by our sins, God has done in Christ what we cannot do for ourselves. You and I deserve God's judgment. And yet the Bible tells us that the perfect righteous sufferer, the Son of God, stands in the place of all those who put their faith in Him and receives the judgment of God so that we might never experience it. This is the language of substitutionary atonement. One standing in the place of another bearing their shame and sin and guilt on their behalf. And the Bible tells us that, God, that because Christ is the perfect righteous sufferer, that He stands in our place as the perfect substitutionary atonement, His work is sufficient to repair our broken relationship with our Creator, because of our sin. So you and I now stand with a perfect, you realize you have a perfect relationship with God. You have a perfect relationship with God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ, the ultimate righteous sufferer, has done standing in your place. That is good news. And so Peter begins by reminding those people of Jesus. And he tells, he tells them in verse 18 that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, speaking of his crucifixion, but that he was made alive in the Spirit, which is a reference to his resurrection, among other things. And then in verses 19 and 20, Peter does something unexpected. We would think he would be done there, but Peter says, Peter says, I'm going to bring Noah into the picture here. Suffering Christians, let's talk about Noah a little bit. Okay, look again at verses 19 and 20. It says, In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay. Who in the world are these spirits that he's talking about? Now, if we had, a, if we had a whole, our, our whole time to talk just about this, I could talk you through all the main ideas, and then you could pick the one that you think is most the faithful, most faithful interpretation. Because we don't have that time, I'm going to tell you what I think, what I think the right interpretation is, and you are free to disagree with me on this. Okay? We ask ourselves the question, these spirits, who are these spirits in prison? Does the Bible say anything else about this? Does the Bible have any language in any other places that would remind us of this? Well, it just so happens that it does. One of those places is Jude chapter 6. Jude 6 mentions angels kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until that great day of judgment. Okay, so we've got a parallel that idea of angels being kept in chains in gloomy darkness until a day of judgment, that, that seems like it could fit. Okay, Then we have Peter in his second letter saying something similar. It'll be on the screen behind me, but Second Peter 2, verses 4 to 5 says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, dot, 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 it continues going. But you, you get the point. Peter is drawing now a specific connection between sinning angels, fallen angels, and he's reaching right back to the time of Noah, and he's connecting it to, to, to the time of Noah Again. So what do we know about Noah's day? Noah's day is a time of great wicked and great evil, right? In fact, the Bible tells us that God looks on what he's created. And as he looks on what he's created, it grieves him to his heart. He regrets that he's made humanity on the earth. We talked about what that means. And he makes a decision that he is going to blot out everything that has the breath of life because it is so wicked. So what Peter seems to be doing here is recognizing that behind, that this, that's referring to a a particularly wicked time in the history of the earth, and he's recognizing that behind all human evil, there is a strain or an element of demonic evil. And we know that's true because the Bible elsewhere reminds us, hey, uh, remember your main enemy is another people. Okay, We do terrible things to each other, but we're not wrestling against just flesh and blood. This is not just the realm of the seen kind of issue here, but there's, an un, there's unseen things going on. You wrestle, we wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the wickedness of, of, of this dark world. And Peter is, is, is referencing that particular dark time for Humanity and recognizing that in part that there's the human evil that's going on, but behind the human evil there is often always demonic influence. So I believe these are fallen angels who've been imprisoned. And if you've got your thinking cap on, and you want to want me to complicate this just a little bit more, if you jump back to Genesis 6, this fits with the idea that the sons of God are actually angelic beings. Now, one is not dependent on the other, but this is one of the supports for seeing the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6 in that way. Have I sufficiently muddied the waters for you? Okay, so we're seeing Noah's time referenced, and we're trying to see the logic of the passage. So, Peter's saying, Christians, you're suffering. Jesus a righteous sufferer, and you stand in a long line of righteous sufferers going all the way back to Noah, who himself was also a righteous sufferer. Okay, that's, the, that's the logic if you're trying to track how this is going. That's the, the, the main elements of logic of the passage. And so the flood is a judgment on the world, we know. But what about the demonic influences there? The flood and the destruction of the world are are no judgment on them. And so they're chained until their day of reckoning. And it appears that their day of reckoning was set in motion when Jesus triumphs over sin and death and hell and proclaims his triumph, his victory, to the spirits who are imprisoned and have been so since Noah's day. And so we've got this movement in this passage of Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection and triumph over sin and death and all those things, and then his movement towards heaven in ascension, where he is right now living and reigning and ruling. Look at the last verse, verse 22. It says, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers. All of those things, anything that you can imagine that would raise its fist against Christ, all of those things subjected to his feet. That's that's what the passage is telling us. Okay, so he's brought Noah in. Noah's the righteous sufferer. God's judgment is coming, but Noah and his family are being protected from the floodwaters of God's judgment. Peter says they're brought safely through the water. After a year's time, they weren't forgotten. They're brought safely through the water. And then he does something that raises our eyebrows. Look again at verse 21. He draws a connection between the floodwaters of judgment and baptism. And he says something that good Christians aren't allowed to say. He says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's one of the things that I almost always say at every baptism that we have? Baptism doesn't save you. And so you might rightly say, hey, have you read this verse which says baptism now saves you? Have you, have you seen that one, Matt? What is Peter doing here? Well, Peter understands what he's doing here, and he quickly offers a couple of qualifications to that statement, baptism now saves you. Those qualifications are immediately following. The first qualification is stated in the negative, doesn't mean this, I don't mean this. The second qualification that helps us understand it is positively what he does mean. So we, if we're going to interpret this properly, we're not going to come away, we're going to harmonize this with the rest of the New Testament's teaching and the Bible's teaching that baptism doesn't save us in and of itself, and we need to make sure how, we understand how Peter qualifies this statement of baptism now saves you. The first qualifying statement is in the negative. He says, it is not the removal of dirt from the body. And that word for dirt there carries with it the idea of moral filth. So he's saying baptism now saves you, but I'm not talking about the removal of moral filth from you. If you slip into the waters of baptism, having, having no idea what baptism means, no understanding of what Christ has done, uh, getting baptized isn't going to save you. Thank you. That, if that was the case, then that would make our evangelistic efforts a little bit different, wouldn't they? We would walk around with a big tub of water, and we would sneak up on people from behind, throw them in this, wrestle them in, I'm doing this for your good, get them down into the water, get them up out, and they'd be done. They'd be, they're saved. <laughs> That's not our evangelistic strategy because... The act of baptism in and of itself does nothing for a person. It does not, it does not, it does, those waters provide no cleansing. Jesus is the one who provides our cleansing. So he qualifies by saying it's it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but then he gives us a second qualifying statement. But it is instead an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is that baptism, when a person stands before a group of people and is publicly baptized in, in, by, in front of a, a group of Christians who are, who are receiving them into the fold, as it were, there are many facets to what's going on in baptism. But one of those facets is that person is standing there and making their appeal to God on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they have a clean conscience. How does a person have a clean conscience? Now, the way we often answer that question is I have a clean conscience when I don't do bad things. I'm I'm repented up and I'm confessed up about the, the things that I've done, and then I very gingerly and carefully try to make my, my way through life without getting any other sin on me without thinking anything wrong, or doing anything wrong, or saying anything wrong. and already you're seeing the ridiculousness of this. Because you cannot tiptoe through life without tiptoeing through the muck of your own sin. So how do we have a clean conscience? If we're still wrestling with what the New Testament refers to as the flesh, our sinful inclinations that are, that are still within us, how can we have a clean conscience before God? Well, the way you can have a clean conscience before God is to stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are so united to Him that His death for sin becomes our death to sin, His resurrection to, uh, to life becomes our resurrection to life. That's what Romans six says, right? Romans six is drawing these comparisons between, between buried with him, by baptism into death, raised to walk in. what? Newness of life. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so this is one of the amazing things about baptism. Baptism is a statement that my conscience is clean, not simply by the act of baptism, but because what the act of baptism looks at, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which guarantees that now and forever, my conscience is clean based on Christ. Now, I know I I just went through that at light speed. So let me try to just back up and give you the pieces again. Peter says, hey, Christians, you're suffering. Jesus suffered. And Jesus is the ultimate and perfect righteous sufferer because he actually vanquishes suffering through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's in charge of everything. Hey, remember Noah? Noah suffered too. But God brought him through judgment safely to the end. and Your baptism is a parallel to that. You have, in essence, been brought through the floodwaters of God's judgment, and you have escaped scot-free based on the resurrection of Christ. I like the way uh, a Bible scholar by the name of Karen Jobes, who has an excellent commentary on 1 Peter that's very helpful, I like the way she puts it in this passage. She says, Peter's readers, that's us, Peter's readers will be among those who escape the second flood of judgment because they have already passed through the waters of Christian baptism, which saves them by virtue of the vindicating resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think that's the logic of the passage. And regardless of what interpretive turns you might take, on that particular passage, isn't it amazing what the Bible does? I mean, I would never have expected, as I'm reading along, for Peter to talk, to talk about suffering and say, and speaking of suffering, let's talk about Noah and baptism. <laughs> and yet, that's what the Bible is doing all the time. It's pulling threads from even the darkest corners, and it's weaving them together to make this beautiful tapestry that we can spend the entirety of our lives trying to understand and still feel like we've only begun to scratch the surface. Like, what's up with the dove and baptism and all that? Like, a lifetime exploring these things. Let me draw a couple of conclusions for us then from what we've looked at today. Let me first speak to a person here this morning who may not be a Christian. What we would invite you to do, if you're with us this morning and are not a Christian, what we would invite you to do is to respond to the call of the gospel. Whenever the gospel is preached, a response is required. And the response that that the gospel calls us to is not try harder, do better, turn over a new leaf, this is a new week. It's not even get baptized. The call of the gospel is a call for us to repent of our sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And do you know why you can repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ? Peter told us, God the Father sent God the Son, the righteous, to be crucified in the place of unrighteous people like me and unrighteous people like you the good news of the gospel is that anyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ can be made clean and whole and new and is, has that broken relationship with their creator completely restored. You could put your faith in Jesus where you're sitting right now. Number two. Protection from God's judgment does not equal exemption from suffering. Protection from God's judgment does not equal exemption from suffering. That's why Peter has to write what he has to write. Because the Christian the believers there are saying, "Well, wait a minute. I thought I was escaping God's judgment, and here I am suffering because I'm following God. What's the deal?" And Peter is saying, no, 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 you're you're misunderstanding that. If you're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps, you may suffer the way Jesus suffered. Now, let me just say to, to those of us who are really on the suffering train, like, we're still not a whole lot on that. So some of us as Christians probably need to chill out on it a bit. The rest of the world, throughout the rest of human history, or Christian history would probably laugh at what we regard as suffering. What we have experienced in the past couple hundred years is the anomaly. It is the exception to the rule. And God never guaranteed that we could live in the exception forever. And so we, should we experience suffering, and the tradition of our brothers and sisters throughout the ages, we remember we may be experiencing the direst forms of suffering, and yet, we will escape. Thirdly, I want to speak to uh, a specific group of people here this morning who you may have a rather weak conscience. And I say you may have a a rather weak conscience, not in a pejorative way. (laughs) Not like the rest of us who have strong consciences. I want to speak specifically a word to the people who are here who have rather weak consciences. And what I mean by weak conscience is your conscience is constantly condemning you. Because you are so aware of your own shortcomings... You are aware of your own sinful proclivities. You've been maybe even replaying as you were coming to church this morning the things that you said to somebody you cared about this week. We say the most awful things to each other. We we hurt each other so badly. I'm also speaking to people who feel the weight of the sin of of their past life. And they know they're forgiven in Christ, and yet it feels like that weight of what's been done in the past is just always there. And I I wake up in the morning, and I open my eyes, and it's there in front of me again, and it's dragging me down. These are the people that I'm speaking to right now. You need to believe what we've talked about this morning. You need to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Why do you, why do you say that, Matt? Why, why is it so important? When I'm thinking about my own shortcomings, my own sin, the weight of my past life that just seems like it's on the pillow with me when I lay down at night, why, why do I need to, resurre- to remember the resurrection of Jesus What did Peter say? It's the appeal of a clean conscience by virtue of what Christ has accomplished by his resurrection from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't say, I've forgiven you, but you better show me how much you appreciate it by beating yourself up the rest of your life because you are a lousy person. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proclaimed victory over sin, death, and wickedness, the wickedness that you feel in your own heart, the the wickedness that you've done, the wickedness you have yet to do. He covers it all. So that every time Satan tempts you to despair, you push back and say, I can have a clean conscience. I look back at my baptism when I declared my faith in Christ. Last week I referenced a movie called Don't Look Up. And I'm going to close with that. At the end of that film, the main characters have now all gathered together to eat a last dinner they make dinner themselves, and they're sitting there around this table, this strange group of people who have been brought together by this impending doom. You don't know what I'm talking about. You really need to listen to the beginning of last week, because <laughs> it's not going to make any sense. But they're sitting around the table, and the plates start to shake They can start feeling the vibrations in the house. One of the the main characters says, we really did have everything, didn't we? And then the vibrations pick up and the plates shake more and then in a second, they're obliterated. That's entertainment. But what would you do in the face of that if you know It's coming. Would you cry? Would you put your AirPods in and close your eyes so you don't have to hear it? Would you hold hands with the people around you? Would you stand defiant and watch it come? What would you do? Fortunately, you'll never need to know. As God's judgment surges forward, you are as safe as Noah was in the ark because you are safe in Christ. And as was evidenced by your baptism, you've already escaped the flood. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to stand in awe of the way the Bible is woven together. No mere product of humanity could do something like that. Lord, we also stand in awe that you would send your Son, the Righteous One, that you'd be willing to pour out the judgment that we, the unrighteous ones, deserve on him. For Those of us who consciences are constantly condemning them. I pray that you would help them to believe the promises of the Bible that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help us to raise our heads high as those who have their consciences clean. Because we have been raised with Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father above all powers if there's someone here with us this morning who has never repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, I pray that you would raise them to walk in newness of life as we put our hope in the resurrected Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.